Chapter 3 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jules Harlock, Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes, edited by Walter Wood, Chapter 3, The Sham Baronet. The late Lord Brampton, who, when he was Mr. Henry Hawkins, appeared as counsel in both the Tichborne trials, paid a compliment to Dr. George Fletcher, J.P., in referring to him as a great authority on this famous case. There is no living person who has a deeper knowledge of the Tichborne case than Dr. Fletcher. He came into close association with the claimant. For many days he attended the first trial, which lasted a 103 days, and he was occasionally present during the second trial, which lasted a 188 days, and finally he examined the mortal remains of the man who, having passed out of public notoriety, died, almost starved in a miserable attic, off the Edgeward Road in London. Dr. Fletcher tells the story of the greatest impostor who has been known in modern England. The Tichborne case is such an enormous subject that it is uncommonly difficult to know where to start and what to say, but I can begin by explaining briefly that a young officer in the 6th Dragoon Guards, the Carboneers, Roger Tichborne, was drowned in 1854 off the coast of South America at the age of 25, and 11 years later a coarse butcher from the Australian bush turned up and saying that he was the long-lost Roger, claimed the Tichborne estates, which were worth 30,000 pounds a year. It took seven years and two lengthy trials in our law courts to prove that this man was a marvelous impostor, and it cost the county half a million sterling to stamp him as a liar, and that was quite irrespective of the enormous sums which were subscribed and lost by deluded people who pinned their faith to the creed that the butcher from the bush was the missing heir to the baronetcy. Throughout the whole of the exciting times of the trial, when the Tichborne case occupied the attention of the country, almost to the exclusion of every other subject, and when people most vehemently took one side or the other, my father-in-law was rector of Ovington, a village adjoining the Tichborne estate in Hampshire. I first met the claimant during the autumn of 1867, when I was spending part of the long vacation at Ovington, and I saw him several times during the next few years when he was collecting evidence in the neighborhood in favor of his claim. I had therefore many opportunities of forming an opinion of him and seeing what he was really like, and a more unpromising impostor in the circumstances. It is almost impossible to imagine. I always did marvel, and I marvel now, 
that anyone could have been deceived for a moment as to the real character of the claimant. Roger Titchborne was a gentleman, and, no matter what his vicissitudes in his early years might have been, he would have retained sufficient characteristics to show his breeding and origin. But there was no redeeming feature about the claimant. He was thoroughly low-born, vulgar, illiterate fellow, plebeian to a degree, and I never saw a sign in him of anything approaching education and refinement. His pronunciation of English was terrible, his accent was pure cockney and very far removed from the speech of an officer in the Carabiners. In fact, in all general characteristics, he was hopeless. It is easy for some men, however insignificant their position in life may be, to hold their own in good and decent company. They are adaptable and impressionable to superior surroundings. But the claimant was nothing of a sort. He was inherently and incorrigibly common, vulgar and ignorant, and he remained so from first to last. One of the most amazing things in this astounding case was the dissimilarity between the real Roger and the impostor from the bush. The lost heir was a tall, slim officer of ten and a half stone, and a gentleman. The claimant was a hill of flesh, a twenty-five stone monster, and a vulgar atrocity. Yet it took seven years to persuade quite a multitude of people that he was what the Attorney General called him, a conspirator, a perjurer, a forger, and a lying impostor, in short, as great a criminal as could be found in the annals of our law courts. Let me briefly review the essential preliminary facts of this unexampled case. They are these. Sir Henry Titchborne died in 1821, leaving four sons. The eldest, Sir Henry, died in 1845. The second, Edward, took the name of Dowdy and was known as Sir Edward Dowdy. He had one daughter, Kate, who was to figure prominently in the great drama. The third son, James, had two sons, Roger, born in 1829, and Alfred, born in 1838. As Sir Edward Dowdy had no sons, Roger, who was to achieve so much posthumous fame, became the prospective heir. He was born in Paris and was brought up entirely in that city until he was 16 years old. Roger's mother was a bad-tempered, weak-minded woman and hated all the Titchborns so much that she spared no effort to keep Roger away from them and did all she could to bring him up as a Frenchman the result of her conduct being that young Roger lived in an utterly wretched home. When Sir Henry died in 1845, Roger's father, James, insisted upon taking his son over to the funeral and introducing him as the prospective heir to the relatives. Roger was sent to school at Stonyhurst, and there he remained for three years. So ignorant was he of English, speaking only a few words of our language, that the boys ridiculed him, calling him Frenchy. Roger, however, progressed and 
passed from Stonyhurst into the Carboneers. Fortunately, as it happened, his army examination papers were preserved. In three years, at the end of 1852, Rogers sold out from the Carboneers, those being the days of purchasing and selling commissions in the army. Roger now saw a good deal of his cousin Kate, and, naturally enough, he fell in love with her, but the match was opposed and finally was broken off, and there was a sad farewell interview at Tichborne Park, of which we shall hear later. Deeply grieved by his enforced separation from Kate, Roger determined to go away on a long vacation, and in March 1853 he started on a three-year trip around the world. On April 24, 1854, having traveled over a great part of South America, he set sail from Rio de Janeiro for New York in a ship called the Bella. She was overtaken by a terrible storm on the second day, and though wreckage and boats were picked up, not a soul was ever heard of, and the law presumed that Roger was drowned. His will was proved, his brother Alfred became the heir to the estates, and on the death of their father, in 1862, Alfred succeeded to the property. Alfred died in 1866, and three months later, his widow gave birth to a son, who succeeded to the estates. This baby, represented by his trustees, became the defendant at the first trial. When the claimant tried to secure the estates, the baby became Sir Henry Tichborne, who died in 1910 and was succeeded by his son, Sir Joseph Tichborne, who, now 26 years old, lived at the Tichborne Park. These details will, I think, clearly explain the state of things which arose from the loss of the Bella and the disappearance of Roger. But there was an unexpected development, for Roger's mother, on hearing of the loss of the ship, was distracted, and always somewhat feeble-minded, her reason gave way, and she positively refused to believe that he had perished. She declared that he would soon return, and she always kept a light burning in the hall at Tichborne Park, which is on the high road from Portsmouth to London. But the dowager Lady Tichborne did more than just wait and mourn. She advertised persistently and extensively for news of her missing son, and in 18... 65, when the gold fever was at its height in Australia, she wrote freely to agents who had offices open for inquiries concerning missing friends. Her advertisements were seen in Sydney, and a lawyer named Cubitt replied saying that he could probably find her son. He asked her if she was prepared to go to the expense of sending someone to New Zealand. Of course, the overjoyed lady would pay almost anything, and she actually sent 400 pounds, though no son was ever found for her in New Zealand. But the lawyer had got a good nibble, and he was not going to let such a valuable catch go. He had a sort of partner named Gibbs at Wagga Wagga, a little bush town 300 miles from Sydney, 
and this man happened to see copies of the illustrated london news and the times containing the advertisement in four languages of the missing roger now there was at wagga wagga an enormously fat man named according to the sign over his door castro and he was a butcher he had come to financial grief and found it necessary to go to gibbs to be taken through the bankruptcy court it became his duty to make certain revelations and amongst them was the fact that his real name was not castro he had been convicted for horse-stealing and had taken the name of castro on coming out of prison he had not disclosed to gibbs what his real name was and mrs gibbs suggested to her husband that this might be the baronet who was advertised for at this time there returned to wagga wagga a man named slade who had been a gardener for some years to the titchbournes and he had not only the newspapers with the advertisements in them but also pictures of the titchbourne estate and the butcher castro meeting him began his amazing career of fraud pause for a few moments to get a clear idea of the person who foisted himself off as an english gentleman and heir to an old baronetcy and a rent roll of thirty thousand pounds a year arthur orton was born at wapping in the east end of london in eighteen thirty four and was the son of a butcher as a child he had st vitus's dance and for that reason and because there was no school board in those days he received practically no education as a boy he helped to cut up meat and became an expert slaughterman the st vitus's dance did not improve and the boy went to sea, but he deserted his ship at Valparaiso and went inland seventy miles to a place called Melapila. For two years he remained there, the only Englishman, and stayed with a storekeeper named Thomas Castro. In 1851, Orton returned to England in the ship Jesse Miller, spent a year at Wapping, and kept company with a young woman named Mary Ann Loder. They were both tattooed at Greenwich Fair. How fatal to Orton was that tattoo mark to become? Mary had A.O. tattooed on her arm, and long afterwards, when the impostor was posing as the heir to the estate, she met him and said, Come now, Arthur, we're pals, you know. Here's your initials on my arm, and there, you know, pointing to his own arm, you'll find A.O. also. But the scoundrel was too cunning to show his arm, and he resolutely refused to bear it. Now that tattoo mark A.O. was on Orton's arm. I saw the scar when he was alive and after his death, in a miserable, poverty-stricken attic in a by-street off the Edgeware Road. I saw it again. When the spot was first seen in public, there was a deep recent scar found, and on being questioned, the claimant calmly said, that was where I was vaccinated in France. On the opposite arm, however, I saw the ordinary scars of vaccination, and Dr. Guy, a prison surgeon, told a friend of mine that he saw on Orton's arm 
when the claimant was in prison, the remains of A.O. deeply below the scar. Orton left England in December 1852 in charge of some Shetland ponies and went to Hobart Town where he started in business as a butcher. In March 1854, he wrote to Mary Ann Loder and his sister, a Mrs. Jury. Then he was not heard of again by his relations except as the claimant. After many adventures, Orton settled at Wagga Wagga as Castro. He married a servant girl who could neither read nor write and who had to make her mark in the marriage register. Now began a series of posings and deceptions which are so amazing and ludicrous as to be incredible to a generation that knew not Orton. The huge butcher of Wagga Wagga began to shake his head and mutter mysteriously about his family and property in England. In books, whenever he got a chance to do so, he wrote the name Roger Titchborne and carved on trees the missing man's initials, R.C.T. One day, when he was in his veranda smoking a pipe with the large initials R.C.T. carved on the bowl, the agent Gibbs went up and said, Come now, it's no use disguising who you are any longer. I know it full well, and there are your real initials. Orton clapped his hand over the initials as he exclaimed, Hush, for God's sakes, don't utter a sound. But did you see? Did you really? See, answered Gibbs. See, of course I saw. And if you don't write to your mother at once, I shall. And so the monstrous claim began, and it prospered enormously because of the blind faith that the feeble-minded dowager Lady Titchborne had in him. She advanced large sums of money and unconsciously did everything she could to play into the hands of the claimant and the gang which came together to support the fraud. A small band of unscrupulous men who must not be confounded with the supporters who honestly but foolishly believed in the claimant. For one thing, the dowager wrote to tell the claimant to go to the Metropolitan Hotel in Sydney where he would find Bogle, a nigger who was your dear father's servant for thirty-two years, and he will tell you all about yourself. Tell the claimant all about himself? What a wondrous piece of luck! When he knew so little of his real antecedents, as a gentleman and heir to the baronetcy, the Wagga Wagga butcher packed up, took his wife and a newborn babe, and and in the company of Gibbs drove in state into the yard of the Metropolitan Hotel, and, seeing a black man in the yard, he exclaimed, "Allo, Bogle, is that you?' The old negro was so greatly puzzled that he saluted the wrong man, who, curiously enough, was about the build of the missing Roger. But the claimant was equal to the occasion, as he proved equal to many more. He prevented any further mistake by throwing his arm around Bogle and saying, Come now, haven't I just altered? Why, yes, answered Bogle slowly, for even then he must have resolved to be the hoary-headed sinner he proved to be. Yes, you have. 
I should hardly have known you, and no wonder, for Roger, when he saw him last, was an officer and a gentleman, five feet ten inches high and weighing only a little over ten stone, and here he was greeted by a butcher of twenty-three stone. From that hour until the conviction of the claimant, Bogle never left his newly found long-lost master. Bogle, I should explain, had been picked up in Jamaica forty years before by Roger's uncle, Sir Edward Dowdy, and had lived at Titchborne Park with Sir Edward and afterwards with Roger's father, so that he knew as much as anybody about the details of the domestic life at Titchborne. He had been pensioned and had gone to live at Sydney, where the claimant met him. The old nigger threw himself heart and soul and body into the fraud, playing like the rest of the conspirators for very high stakes. After spending a week in Sydney, the claimant and Bogle and others started for England, and in due course there began the great attempt to get possession of the Titchborne estates. In May 1871, the trial began, and for 22 days the claimant was in the witness box. His side closed on December the 21st, 1871, and the trial was resumed in the following month, when the Attorney General for the defendants spoke for 26 days. On the 103rd day of the trial, which was March 6th, 1872, the jury expressed the conviction that the claimant was not Roger Titchborne, and he was non-suited. By that time, it was calculated that the law proceedings had cost the estate 92,000 pounds. As soon as the civil trial was over, the claimant was arrested and taken to Newgate. Finally, on February the 28th, 1874, after a trial lasting 188 days, the claimant was found guilty of perjury and forgery and was sentenced to the severest punishment which the law allowed, 14 years penal servitude. On October the 20th, 1884, the claimant was released on a ticket of leave. When you remember that the Attorney General's opening speech at the second trial extended over a period of five weeks, and that the judge took six weeks to sum up, you will realize that it is impossible to do more than give a very few of the incidences from the thousands that arose in the course of the trial, and I will mention only a small number which particularly impressed themselves upon me as I listened to the trial. Of outstanding interest and importance was the association with the case of Kate Dowdy, Roger's cousin and fiancée. When Roger left Stonyhurst, he saw a good deal of Kate, who lived with her parents at Titchborne Park. When the time for parting came, Roger, who was a Catholic, vowed that if he returned safely from his wanderings and married Kate, he would build a chapel to the Virgin Mary. He gave a copy of this vow to Gosford, the steward of the estate, and it became very famous as the sealed packet, a crucial test in the case, and another copy he gave to Kate. 
A year after Roger was drowned and all hope of his being alive had been abandoned, Kate married Sir Joseph Radcliffe, a Yorkshire baronet, and was proud and happy mother when, twelve years later, the sealed package came up in an awful and unexpected manner. Kate had kept her own copy, but Gosford, after Roger's death, had destroyed his. It was of vital importance to the claimant that he should know the contents of the packet, but when first questioned he, naturally enough, did not even know of its existence. He was then living in a small house at Croydon with his family and Bogle, and Kate, who for ten years had been Lady Radcliffe, had an interview with him. Can you wonder that she utterly failed to recognize her old lover in the butcher from Wagga Wagga? But at the trial, when pressed by the Attorney General respecting this sealed packet, thinking Godsford had destroyed the only copy, he said it contained instructions for Gosford to make arrangements for his cousin's confinement. And then the scoundrel declared in open court that he had seduced the lady in a plantation in Tichborne Park. But this vile, infamous accusation was completely refuted, and it was shown that Roger Tichborne was not in the country at the time the claimant said this thing happened. And there was not, of course, the slightest speck on the fair name of the lady. She lived to be seventy-four years old, was the mother of ten happy, healthy children, and was beloved and honored for miles around her home in Yorkshire. Let us look for a moment at the claimant's version of his experiences at a public school. This illiterate lad from the East End who did not know even the benefits of a board school education. When in the box he was shown Roger's own Caesar and asked what language it was in. Greek was the prompt and astounding answer. Yes, Greek to you, was the Attorney General's quick comment. Roger's Euclid papers were shown to the claimant, and the Attorney General asked him what Euclid was all about. Fortifications, answered the claimant. Then he was asked if he reached the Pons Asinorium, but it was clear that the claimant had never heard of it, any more than he had heard of Euclid, so the Attorney General helped him by translating and saying that it meant the Ass's Bridge. Did you ever cross it? asked the Attorney General. The claimant appealed to the judge and asked if he was to be insulted. The judge assured him that there was no insult. Then the claimant was asked, Where is the Ass's Bridge? A mile and a half from Stony Arst, was his prompt reply. As to Stony Hurst, I remember that the very first time I spoke to the claimant, I said, well, one thing must go terribly against you, and that is, if you ever have a jury who went to a public school, and they find out of, say, 300 boys, you don't know the name of a single lad in the whole school. When I said that I scarcely expected to sit day after day in court as I did and listen to the amazing lies and evasions of the claimant, he literally 
writhed in the box, and the perspiration steamed from him. One of his choicest answers was to the question, Were you ever in the seminary? I wish you were there now, replied the badgered claimant, who had mistaken the word seminary for cemetery. The claimant was asked about his study at Stonyhurst. Was it in the quad? He looked confused, and Coleridge suddenly said, What is a quad? A place where you ought to be, almost groaned the unhappy victim of the ruthless but perfectly just cross-examination. Finally, the claimant was forced into the explanation that a quadrangle is a thing that goes round, a sort of staircase. Can you wonder that long before entering the box, the claimant had realized that the desperate game was up? While on the way to England, Sir Alfred Tichborne, Roger's brother, died, and a baby was born three months later, the baby already referred to. Writing to the dowager lady Tichborne on hearing of the birth, the claimant said, Oh, my poor sister-in-law! with her husband so recently bereft a corpse. I will be generous. Let her give me one year's income, and I will go back gladly to the bush, and the babe and she may have the rest. Yes, indeed, by that time, he would thankfully have settled the matter forever by the payment to him of one year's income, 30,000 pounds. But he had gone too far, and he knew that if he did not try to face the monstrous imposition through, he would be prosecuted. He had borrowed heavily on the strength of his claim, and the people had subscribed large sums of money to help him. One man alone, Mr. Guilford Onslow, who died in 1882, spent about 15,000 pounds in, in supporting the claimant. Without dealing with events strictly in order, I will men mention one outstanding circumstance to show that there was some excuse for people supporting the impostor, especially if they had never seen him, and that was the recognition of him as her son by the dowager. Despite his brazen audacity, the claimant dreaded and put off this interview, but at last he was forced to meet the dowager who was living in Paris. The inevitable meeting came about, but by that time the claimant had shammed illness, and instead of going to the dowager, she went to him at his hotel and found him in bed, groaning with his face to the wall in a darkened room. She tried to embrace him, but he kept his face averted and gave her no chance of re really seeing him. Finally, addressing two men who had gone with him, she said, Here in your presence, I recognize this man as my long-lost Roger. It was impossible after that to disillusion the poor lady, and she was not even influenced by the French tutor of Roger, who on seeing the claimant declared instantly and emphatically that it was not and could not possibly be the messing heir and that the man was an impostor. Roger spoke French like a native, but when the tutor addressed the claimant in that language, the illiterate fellow could not, of course, understand a word he said. 
while his own British dialect was pure cockney of a low type. On the point of his education, the claimant frequently found himself in trouble. On the way to England, the captain of the ship and the passengers marveled that a prospective baronet and an English gentleman should show such an utter lack of education, and his defects were commented upon. So he told them that his education had been neglected because of St. Vitus's dance, which was the result of a fire in the servants' hall at Titchbourne Park when he was nine years old. A fatal slip of the tongue, for Arthur Orton did have St. Vitus's dance at the age of nine, caused by a big fire next door to his home at Wapping, and I've shown that the real Roger was never in England until he was sixteen years of age. Though it is impossible to do more than refer to some of the leading incidents in this unparalleled case, yet I must not omit to mention one or two of the outstanding people who were connected with it. One witness who was called for the claimant was a man named Bajent, described in Hawkins' reminiscences as the historian of the Tichborne family, who knew more of the Tichbornes than they knew of themselves. A man whose cross-examination by Hawkins, which occupied ten days, did more than anything else to destroy the claimant's case. Another dramatic witness in the case was a foreigner named John Louis, who swore that he picked up the claimant at sea when the Bella was lost. He was quickly proved to be an unconscionable and very clumsy liar, for his portrait was seen in a London shop window by two gentlemen who identified him as a man they had employed, and were able to prove that in the year in which he said he had picked up the shipwrecked Roger, he was at that very time undergoing penal servitude. As a perjurer, he was sent back to penal servitude for five years more. I will make only one remark about the trials, or rather the second of them. It was noted for the ruin of the very promising career of Dr. Keenley, the claimant's counsel, who conducted the defense in such an outrageous manner, slandering the judges and witnesses and insulting the jury, that he was disbarred and his professional career ended. Hawkins says of him that at last he was compelled, in order to stop his insults, to declare openly that he would never speak to him again on this side of the grave, and he never did. After serving his sentence, Orton made a tour of the country lecturing, but he had had his day. The bubble was pierced, and the man sank lower and lower. For twelve years he eked out a living as a potman at low public houses, marrying for his second wife the daughter of a poor washerwoman in Hull. Finally, after twelve months of extreme poverty and illness, he died in a squalid garret, and there, directly after his death, I saw him. There is one opinion which I held about the claimant at the time of his death, and I hold it now. It is this, that those who believed in him and stood by him to the extent of furnishing him with large sums of money 
for the purpose of sustaining his preposterous and monstrous claim should at least have helped him in his utter destitution and fatal illness. Instead of doing that, they absolutely ignored him. The claimant was buried in Paddington Cemetery. No stone marks his grave, which is, however, readily pointed out by the attendants. It is a strange circumstance that the man who had befooled half the people of Great Britain should have died on All Fool's Day, the 1st of April, 1898. End of chapter 3, The Sham Baronet.